This is episode 76 of Fatalists, a podcast devoted to the supernatural series Lost Girl and all things sci-fi, supernatural, fantasy, and horror. My name is Dave, and I'm joined, as always, in the studio today by my co-host, Wayne. How you doing? Howdy! How's it going, Dave? Ah, Coming to the end of the summer and back to work. Yeah. Well, of course, you've been working a little bit more than I have. Yeah, true. It's a little easier transition. Yeah, for you, not so much for me. But uh, (laughs) anyway, for the listeners, we'd love to hear from you via email at fatalistpodcast at gmail.com or go to the website at fatalist.podbean.com, leave a voicemail via SpeakPipe, or just record your own audio clip and send the MP3 as an attachment. So uh, we'd like to All thank- right, we'll talk to you next week. And oh, I'm sorry. I just, yeah, I yeah I know. That. Come on. You should be I used get to confused. that. Anyway, we'd like to thank Dan uh, Mikowski for dropping us a line about the podcast and Birds of Prey discussion in particular. So we appreciate that. And he even threw out an idea for a show- uh, that we've thought about and we're kind of leaning towards it, but we won't say anything yet. So anyway, tonight we're here to discuss episode 13, the series finale of Birds of Prey, and to give you our abbreviated takes on The Leftovers, Defiance, Falling Skies, and Extant. But before we do that, it's time for Do We Care? And today's topic, do we care that San Diego Comic-Con panels are pretty much worthless other than getting to see all the actors together? I mean, because that's pretty much what it's evolved into. Right, but just the actors. Yeah, I, I don't see. Here's where I have to take what I had suggested, what my do we care would be. Do I really care about the San Diego Comic Con period? I know a lot of people out there um, love going to the cons. And, uh, you know, I've heard like people like, you know, they get in the costumes and everything and it's, have, have a great time with it. And it seems like a good time, but it's just kind of like not necessarily my personal ball of wax as like crowds uh, is not like i'm not big on like lots of people and and crowds well right me neither am i and i can see the appeal of it for some people so i'm I'm really kind of talking about you know people like us that are depending on youtube and i guess when i discovered comic-con which was maybe two or three years ago uh, and then discovered that a lot of the panels were available on YouTube. I got really excited and, and spent hours watching them. And then this year, it just kind of hit me that, well, they're not really telling me anything. They're not revealing right. anything. Right. A- and most of the panels, you know, I'm not sure how it works out, but a lot of the uh, panels will show exclusive footage. And for whatever reason, however it happens, the guys filming for YouTube always cut that out and never show it. So I don't know if that's kind of the agreement. If you don't do that, we'll, we'll let your YouTube videos stand. So, uh, but outside of that, now I will say, I do think it's cool when you see the entire cast of a show, but outside of that. Yeah, it is cool. Um, and we talked, uh, it's maybe a couple years ago, we, you know, we had kind of discussed the lost girl, um, panel that, that one year. And it's kind of neat when you see how these actors uh, interrelate and how they act with one another and, you know, and, and you know, you get to see them hung over too and everything. So, um, but yeah, you're right. As, as far as giving up like real kind of juicy inside information about a show, um, that's what happened. You know, so I, I use the word juicy there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Catch that? No. Remember, cause like the, the, um, Continuum. Oh, Dylan. Thing that uh, Michael went to last right, year. Juicy that, that Dylan. Whole, well, we didn't know his first name. Yeah, the, yeah. this whole inside joke. Okay. And that was kind of funny, but also got to be like right. 
uh, you know, even just listening to the podcast of just like annoying that. They and and some that. shows reveal some things, but for the most part, they don't. Now, you mentioned something though the other day. Uh, are there too many cons? And and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I was just taking. That's okay. I'm simply sorry, like, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, because yeah, and of course, obviously, you tell from what I said before that I'm in the opinion that yeah, it's crazy how many of these things that they have. I, and I guess the thing I was thinking about is, look, the, we're on the East Coast. The chance that I get to San Diego Comic Con, well, aside from the fact that I'd actually have to leave the state of Maryland, which is <laughs> highly unlikely. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to get out there, and, and that's the major con. Now we have two, a couple relatively local Balticon and Shore Leave, which you know have a, a reasonably large turnout and, and you know a number of of quality panelists. I've never gone, and I don't think you have either. No, have, but yeah, we've yeah. talked about it before, and maybe someday we will. Yeah, but- my, my friends sometimes, so they used to would go down for the, the Balticon, and they would. Um- hang out at uh, this outside bar on Pratt Street and just kind of people watch as the people go by in their costumes and kind of rate the costumes as, as people went which, by. Which so. has, has merit. Sure. But uh, so I don't know. I guess we differ on that. I mean, I just think it gives, you know, fans an opportunity to get to a con. And, 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 and it's, it's one thing to deal with the crowds at a place like San Diego. But then when you're standing in line for multiple hours to get to the one panel you want to go to, and then there are two to three hours worth of panels that you're missing because you're in line. I don't know. That seems kind of silly to yeah, me. Yeah, and that's, I mean, basically almost all, if, if I could just go to the con, if, like if they had tickets, I could go to the, the panel I want to, and they had tickets to it, so that's I guarantee the seat. But yeah, I'm, I'm not going to stand in line for two or three hours for pretty much anything. Maybe like medicine for my children, yes. But to listen to actors talk about a TV show, no thanks. It'll probably no. depend which child too, right? Uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, All right. But but so like there's really, uh, but I th- on the other hand, I think the cool part really is the the, the social aspects. You go around and people are dressed up exactly. Like Malcolm Reynolds. Uh, I'm going to talk about the popularity of Harley Quinn's costume at at Comic Con, right? At, at the cons. I think that's the cool part. I think really the part of actually going to these panels is probably to me would be the least attractive part of it. You know, I think if I would go to these, I would just go just to kind of walk around and hang out and see the sites and talk to the people and ask them about their costumes, how they made them and stuff like that. I think that's the cool part. Yeah. So, all right. So I guess we kind of care. All right. Well, anyway, in sci-fi news this week, uh, just one item, but it's a rather important one, especially because of what we've got. Uh, in the near future. Uh, Wayne, would you like to see more Captain Jack Harkness in future seasons of Doctor Who? Would I? Okay. Well, when Doctor Who celebrated its 50th anniversary, I think most of us hoped that John Barrowman would return. At one point, there were supposed negotiations for just that. However, nothing ever uh, materialized from it. In fact, Barrowman's sister, Carol, even went so far as to say that the BBC were, quote, mad at him for even hinting that he might be in the 50th. Um, and, and obviously there was a lot of secrecy re, uh, around which doctors, which characters would be in it. Uh, but as we begin series eight later this month, August 23rd to be exact, Doctor Who shows no signs of stopping anytime soon. So surely Captain Jack will come back eventually. 
Well, not according to Barrowman, who, after being asked once again if he might return, resigned himself to saying, when somebody comes in and takes over from the team that were there when you were there, they tend to cut a lot of stuff and go in their direction. If you're not in that plan, then there's nothing you can do about it. That's a BBC decision. It's not my decision. I would love to do it, but I might never be on Doctor Who or Torchwood again. Now, Barrowman was also asked about Peter Capaldi and said, I know Peter is an actor because he was on Torchwood, Children of Earth, and I think he'll be an awesome doctor. He's a wonderful actor. Also, he's Scottish, so it holds in the line of David Tennant, myself, and other Scots who have been involved in the Whovian world. And for those critics who sit behind their keyboards and say Capaldi's not going to be good, shut up, because you'll watch the show anyway. Uh, this is Barrowman talking, not right. me. <laughs> you go <laughs> on the journey. Sound like you a little bit. Yeah, you go on the journey. The Doctor takes you on, no matter who is playing him. And I guess if we can't have him on Doctor Who, well, at least we get to see him on Arrow. And there's certainly a lot to be said for that. So, yeah, we'll see. Looking forward to August 23rd and the return of Doctor Who, and really, I guess the first real episode with the new Doctor. Yeah, I am looking forward to it, though I'm still uncertain as to how I'm going to watch it, but I'll figure it out. Oh, because you're, yeah, because you don't have uh, BBC America, yeah. Yeah. So we'll we'll have to get creative. All right, so, all right, in this week's genre show, Quick Takes, we're going to talk about The Leftovers, Defiance, Falling Skies, and Extant, and Wayne, you're going to start us off with The Leftovers. But before you start, let me just... It's one of those shows that, you know, each week I go to my DVR, and I'm like, all right, what do I want to watch? And... I keep putting that off. For some reason, I'm thinking like, eh, I'm not going to really get into it. I'm not going to really get It was the last one I watched last week. And I'm like, the hell was I doing? This is awesome. This is compelling. So I didn't make the same mistake on the most recent episode. Yeah, I, I totally see where you're coming from there. It, it seems like, you know, for some reason, yeah. If you look at like, oh, okay, I got Falling Skies up there. I got Defiance up there, you know. So. I uh, just recorded Road Trip the other day. That's a good movie. Um, so, um, oh, by the way, and this, I just want to say that I, I watched Elysium last night. Oh. And it was, you should watch it. Okay. It's it's really good. Okay. Good. I couldn't believe you gave up on it. But, okay. But anyway, that's the side. Um, but you're right. It's for, there's something that like, you, you think, because there's not like, there's no battles or spaceships or anything like super huge dramatic happening, right? Yeah. It's just people. It's just pretty much regular people dealing with something crazy that happened. But there's all kinds of it. Kind of a part of the show is the the craziness of of everyday life, right? Right. right. Now I'm you're really, going to talk about the most recent episode, right? Yeah. That just just yeah. aired, not the one that opened with the yeah, stoning, right? Which was I, I was going to kind of mention it just to say. I mean, that was you know difficult I, to watch. I feel like yeah, like I, I had to turn my head. It, it was. It was that was horrible. I'm going to shut up and let you talk. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I did, I did want to like you know kind of mention that because yes, in the, in the previous episode they, they started with one of the guilty remnant was executed by stoning, um, and not the not the fun kind like the biblical kind, um, and so it was it was it was really horrible and and, and impossible. I would say impossible to watch. I I, if, I don't know if anyone like kept looking. I certainly turned my head. Um, towards the end of that that scene and so but there's none of that really the the guilty remnant is really not a part of this episode. this was another standalone episode like i think the last time i talked about the leftovers was with matthew um and his story now it's following his sister nora and following her story and so what we knew about nora before was that you know her whole family had been 
uh, part of the departure. Uh, we knew she worked for this government agency that gets um, uh, recompense for the people, gets money uh, for people who, who lost uh, family members. And also we learned, which I thought was actually kind of cruel, how Matthew told her that her husband was cheating on her with the, the kid's preschool teacher, which, I mean, that's what Matthew's all about, right? Matthew's all about uncovering the truth and everything. But still, it's like, so what this show is really all about, this, this episode, I should say, is, and really what the show is about is people learning to accept, learning acceptance, learning to move on. Uh, because as you can see, the, one of the first things we see of Nora here is she's getting in the fridge, pulling out a full gallon of milk, and you can tell how she lives it. It's, it's full, dropping the trash can, taking a, a box of Lucky Charms out of the, the cupboard, dropping that into the trash can, and then out of her shopping bag, she pulls a whole nother gallon of milk she puts in the fridge, a whole big box of Lucky Charms she puts. So, you know, what we see at first is, okay, I get it. She's got a gallon. She's by herself. She, shouldn't have, she wouldn't need a gallon of milk. So maybe this is showing her accepting and then she starts putting this stuff back in you're like oh wait no it's the opposite so she still to some she still feels like her family is, is going to come back and she might not be wrong there we don't I was gonna, know right you know uh even when she she finally divorces her husband uh he's not there and the judge even says you know if he comes back this this divorce is still valid you're still divorced and she's like i know you know so I think, I don't know if anyone's ever vocalized it before that point. That's the first time I noticed someone vocalizing the possibility that people might return from this. Yeah. Because they don't know why they left, so the possibility they might return is, is a possibility. So um, as she's leaving the, the courtroom, she's obviously distraught, and she sees Kevin, and she and Kevin had a moment uh, already b- before, and she sees Kevin, and she... Straight up asked him, "Do you want to go to Miami?" And he's like, "Uh, what?" <laughs> like, and and he says, "I I can't. I have a daughter." And she says, "I'm going to use the not say the word, but she says, basically f your daughter." And that's that's harsh. You know, what I mean, like, whoa. Yeah. So you know, you can see that there, there's something, there. and and she's obviously kind of. We see here, this is she, she's spiraling, and she's spiraling hard. So she goes to New York for a conference rather than Miami because she really didn't want to – she was trying to get out of going to this conference in the first place. But now she goes to the conference, and once she gets to New York, she starts spiraling big time. Uh, she gets there, and her, her badge is gone. Someone else has picked up her badge. And I, I don't really go – I've only been to a couple conferences, but it seems to me it should be a bigger deal than they made it that uh, someone else had her badge. Like the, the person says, ah, it's no big deal. Ah, you'll find it. It's just like – Wait, she's supposed to be on a panel, right? right. And if someone else is running around with a badge and this person could impersonate her you know, all the time, shouldn't you be making a bigger deal out of this? So, but they don't. And, and that part of it becomes this thing where she's trying to find out um, who's got her. And, and she sees this other woman who, I, I can't remember what the issue had been with them in the past. And you know, the woman runs the bathroom. She chases her there. She realizes it's, no, it's it's not a woman who stole her ID. It's it's some other woman she had had some confrontation with before. And the reason the woman looked furtive was because she remembered Nora, but Nora didn't remember her. Right. So she ends up going to a party with this group of salesmen. And what they sell 
are artificial corpses. And there's a the, the show starts off with actually an advertisement for this, where you know if you want closure, send us a picture of your loved one. We will send you back a 100% accurate corpse of your loved one that you can then bury and get some closure. And, and the, the, the commercial is very cheesy with, you know, the, the woman who looks sad at the beginning, at the end is, you know, getting a cooler out of the back of her car and smiling. She's got a new man now and everything like, Oh, now that I've, you know, buried this fake corpse, everything's okay and everything. So, um, and, and, and this party is a, a back in the alley, right? It's just sex, drugs, everything. Uh, Nora takes some drug. She, she's, going wild she ends up mounting the fake corpse and starts making out with it which was well the, well the guy whose likeness it is says right. he wants to i want to kiss you right and she says okay she says okay and then she starts kissing the she, she kisses the the, yeah. the artificial corpse right. right uh which was you know i don't know not entirely not sexy you yeah, know yeah, i mean it yeah. was on some level kind of okay. was though it was probably more disturbing slightly i'll give it like maybe a Sixty forty on that one. Okay, I feel better now. <laughs> Having heard you say that, too. yeah. So she uh, she gets woken up the next day by people pounding on her door, and she's obviously still in her clothes from the night before. She's in her hotel room, so she didn't you know crash up where the party was. And they say, "Get out!" You know, you you were making trouble down the bar. You destroyed property. You broke the the mirror of the bar. And she said, "I was I wasn't there. I wasn't there. Someone stole my my badge." And they're like, you know, whatever, get out. So you know, probably a lot of people would just get out. But we know one thing about Nora is, is as we saw with her family, she's not a person to drop things. She's not going to let things go. So she goes to like a Staples or a Kinko's, uh, makes a new badge with her name on it, returns. It's, of course, as soon as she gets to the hotel, they, the security recognizes her and they grab her again. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's a convention. Maybe she could have gotten away with it. I thought maybe she should put a hat on sunglasses, a wig, something else a little bit, but, um, because she's obviously now obsessed with finding this person. Cause I, you know, she knows she wasn't at the bar. So she fears it must've been the person who has her, her name tag and that's who it was. And, and so she convinces security to let her go to the conference that she's uh, the panel that she's supposed to be part of. And he's like, well, if the woman isn't there, will you leave? And she's like, fine. And of course, she goes there, and there is a woman there impersonating her. And we discovered someone had like some kind of political agenda, of somewhat similar to that of what we assume the the guilty remnant uh, espouses their their kind of philosophy. Assuming they ever espoused anything, exactly right, right. Um, and so, so she, you know, there she 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 wins. She gets her you know her thing back, and then so afterwards she goes down to the bar, and uh, you know she's obviously in pretty severe need of a drink after the day she's or the day and a half she's had here. And she meets the guy who wrote the book that's being passed around. It's someone who had lost family members and who wrote a book about it. And she starts berating him because how can you write a book? Obviously you're not really, you're, you're a fake. If, if you were for real, you'd be too upset to be able to write this. Book. Right. And it's, it's sort of unclear whether he actually is a charlatan or. It, in I mean, a way. Well, he is in that he's not, He's not um, distraught, right? And, and he's moved on. And and her point is, is, if you are really someone who lost someone, you you wouldn't have moved on. Um, and so she 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 runs out 
of the hotel. Uh, oh, don't she, she doesn't run out. Actually, I think she sits back down, fishes her drink after she screams at this guy. And uh, but the, a a tall bald guy who I believe we, we'd seen before in this episode says, "If you know he is a fraud, you're right. If you want me to show you how, come with me." And and this is kind of like I actually talked about obsession with the vanishing. Like if you want to know the truth, come with me. And how far are you willing to go? She gets this stranger who's bigger than her. She goes into an elevator and down a seedy hallway oh and all God. kinds of things that yeah. I don't think I would ever do, but she's so obsessed and she's so just, like I said, she's spiraling. She's just completely out of control. And she has a big handgun in her purse too. And she does. So she forgot. That's, that's actually the part I like. They're like, why would you come back with a handgun? She's just like, Oh, I forgot that was in there. It's like, really? Yeah. <laughs> like, but what well, actually, and I forgot to mention that part is that, yeah, she, she, we know that she carries a handgun around with her. We thought it was for personal protection, but it's not. She likes to call up hookers, strap on a Kevlar vest, and have them shoot her. You know? And again, this is like, wow. I mean, this, the, the character development here, and part of what I'm going to say is just how the writing of, of this episode in particular is, was just out of this world. So eventually uh, she goes to the place and they say, you want to find the truth? A thousand dollars. And she's just like, whatever. And we saw her drop an extra thousand when the, the prostitute said, you know, I, I, I need another thousand dollars to shoot you. And she's like, fine. And she slaps it down right. just like it's nothing, you know? So I guess she's pretty set as far as money goes. Well, she, I'm assuming she got uh, payment yeah, three for losing three, payment, right. right? So she's like, she's got all this, you know, what she may even consider blood money, you know? Um, and, so she finds out, she goes in the room, and there's, there's Wayne, right? right? And Wayne has now, he's looking rough. He's in a seedy hotel room in New York City, and that's where he's ended up. And he tells her, all right, if, if you want me to do this, let's do it. He, like, he opens up his arms to hug her, and she's like, what? He's like, listen, I'm tired. And, and he says something about my time is short. Yeah. So it seems like he, he feels like he doesn't have much time left. Um, and she obviously is reluctant at first, but he, he, he says, you know, you're, you're, you're suffering because you think they're coming back you know, you, you, and all this stuff. And finally she, he hugs her and she cries, you know, she has a really good hard cry and, um, and she's better. Yeah. Right. We, the next scene we see her, she's not wearing, we've always seen her in black throughout every scene she's been in. She's been wearing black. The next scene she opens up the door and she's in like, she's not wearing black. Um, the question with Wayne here is, does he actually have like some kind of supernatural abilities or does he, is he just getting really good at getting people to experience that catharsis? Right. Um, you know, or is there something going on? It's, it's, it's hard to tell because the words he says to her causes her to break down and cry. And so I don't know. Well, or, you know, is he some kind of a Christ figure? I mean, you know, the whole acknowledging he doesn't have much time. You know, as right. if he, as if he knows somebody's going to betray him, which will lead to his death. And sure, um, I mean, obviously there have been a lot of religious overtones to the show. Ab- so uh, absolutely, and and, yeah. and a lot, and certainly you can't escape the yeah the religious overtones right. with him. You're absolutely right. Uh, he could be some kind of Christ figure here. So, um, and so finally we get to they mentioned earlier that for question 121, uh, people will respond 100 percent yes. And and she's like, well, isn't that what we're looking for? And like, well, no, that's not all the other interviewers. It's it's mixed, right? But for you, everyone says yes for that. And so we finally, at the end, learn that question one twenty one. She's interviewing a woman, and question one twenty one is, uh, do you think your loved one is in a better place? I don't 
I'm, I'm, that's paraphrasing. I don't know if that was exactly what it was. And so now we realize, oh, well, she's just been checking you off yes every single time because that's what she wants to believe. Like she believes that so firmly she's been fudging her results right. uh, this whole time. But the lady she's interviewing starts crying and says no. Actually, I don't even think she said no. I think she might have just shook her head. And Nora checks off the no. So now we know she has she right. is she has moved on. Um, and so that's uh and and, and um, Kevin shows up at her place then, and they agree to a date. He he says, I'll, "I'll let you go." The the whole thing you said about my daughter. Um, but why don't we try going out to dinner? And she's like. Cool. So um, we see here there's you know, some possibility of romance here between yeah. her well, and Well, if you looked at the previews, it looks like they went straight to dessert. But Oh, what? See? I'm sorry. Dude. All right. Anyway. Now, real quickly, do you know who Andy McDowell is? Andy McDowell, yes. She was in uh, – she, she's a model uh, for yeah. weddings and a funeral. Yeah, green card. Yeah. yeah. Kevin Garvey's daughter is her daughter. Really? Yeah. I did not know. I that. didn't know it either. I just happened to look it up on IMDb uh, when I was watching the show and during commercials. So, gotcha. Yeah, cool. So, all right, all right. So well, let me get. Okay. I got. I got good, bad, and okay. a haiku. This okay. Week, so, um, so the good things about this. First of all, Nora, I think is my favorite character now. Yeah, I mean, especially after, after this episode, she was just like, you know, you really feel for her the whole way. And um, it's going to be a while before I get that that image of her kissing the fake corpse out of my head you know, and everything. Um, there's also that scene, I don't know if you caught that, the, she's walking to the hotel and a guy puts a grenade in her hand and pulls the pin. And she's standing there for a second and then she drops it. Well, she realizes, when you look at the grenade, she realizes it's a dummy grenade. Oh, did she realize yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, because you can see. I mean, at first I was like, you. But then I think she looked at it and she could, you could see the handle. You know, she wasn't holding the handle and it wasn't. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right, all right. So, okay. Because I thought, oh my god! Like, because she just totally dropped it. Like, yeah. So she really doesn't care whether she lives or dies. But no, she realized it was a dummy okay. grenade. Okay. Um, so that then that's not a big deal. I shouldn't even mention it. Um, you know, I, I like this whole thing about Wayne. Um, you know, we assumed well, not assumed, but we you know kind of saw saw him before as maybe a charlatan or some guy who's just like a you know I don't know some Svengali or something. Yeah, and, not so yeah, sure now. Yeah, not so sure exactly. Um, Bad. There's there was this was this was great. I, I I couldn't really find any kind of fault with it at all. Um, you know, Damon Lindelof really knows how to tell a story. He's a master storyteller. I love how he reveals things non-verbally through the details. It was just great. So here's my haiku. Um, Nora is a great big mess. Hug it out with Wayne, but please don't kiss the fake corpse. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um. I'm going to talk about Defiance, and this is episode seven of season two, If You Could See Her Through My Eyes. Um, And it aired on July 31st, 2014. All right. Overarching theme of of relationships. You said you saw it, right? I am caught up on Defiance. So uh, so one of the first things, the the relationship between Daytac and Stama. All right. So he's still living in squalor, abusing alcohol. Um, Now, the fact that he's having sex with one of the family handmaidens isn't unusual and and, and you know but we learn it's, it's not unusual yeah but we'd it's seen not. him and but but regardless yeah. all right so uh now on on the other hand she turns up dead with her eyes cut out and he finds the body outside his trailer and and, and obviously he assumes he's going to be blamed for it um but the other kind of creepy thing was when he's having sex with her he's 
pretending that she's Stama. He's got her, you know, Stama's photo, which falls off the wall, by the way, as they're <laughs> as they're having sex. And I, I, certainly, one of the things I thought was that Stama was responsible for this. And uh, of course, we learn it's not, but we've certainly learned that Stama is ruthless and that she is no longer the dutiful wife. Sure, absolutely. I, I don't know if I really suspected Stama, but I I definitely enjoyed that scene. I thought that was hilarious how you know he made her say Stama, and then yeah. then he looks up at the picture. It yeah. was just yeah. that was classic. And then of course, you know, quickly followed by the big bummer of the girl turning up dead. Yeah. Now um, he enlists Rafe's help in disposing of the body since he suspects he'll be blamed, and promises Rafe. Uh, weapons in return and it's cool i like it the fact that these are two sworn enemies who've now been brought together through marriage of their children and and that will be a topic uh in a few minutes because their relationship is is starting to come off the tracks to a certain extent he meets stama in the street tells her exactly what happened and they're going to work together to find out who killed her because uh, this handmaiden had some meaning to Stama as well. So she gives him money to find out what happened, right? A little bit of walking around money, you know, money that your, your, your guys can buy information. But the interesting thing that also comes is these guys that were his guys are no longer his guys. They answer to her. And I, I don't know. I, I think it's kind of foolish on there and th- that they're so condescending to him because they've worked with him long enough to know he may be down now but every dog has his day right and, and we've seen how i mean actually thinking about this later i'm like why why his boys transfer their allegiance to stama when we see that the resistance to any kind of female in charge in the whole community is pretty pretty strong so how do these tough guys you know, take orders from a woman when it seems like the rest of the community is pretty set in their tradition of the of this you know patriarchal society. Well, the other interesting thing, and I agree with everything you said, is, is that you know through her we see you know basically like a, a commentary about you know women's rights and and the women's movement. But you look and, and she's even kind of preaching that to the other wives. Yeah, before she kills them all. Right. Well, right, and then you look at what her methods are, and and. No, but yeah. uh, all right. Now their children, uh, Alec and Christy. Um, what is up with Christy? So we we learned she's pregnant, right? We learned that last yes. episode. So now she's clubbing while she's dressed and made up to look like a castathon, and is enjoying every minute she's there because she's getting a, a tremendous amount of attention because of her looks, right? right? And it, it, it's funny because when she first did that, because we we didn't see her from it, um, we saw her starting to put the makeup on, and then the the guy who's the the e rep, I can't remember the the name of the, yeah, the character. Right. Um, you know, he shows up in this club, and I think it's a Castafin club, and he's trying to kind of hang out with the Castafins and look like one. And then this episode, you realize, oh no, it's just all humans dressed up as Castafins. Right. So, um, but still that that irony of of both of these two kind of meeting each other there right now alec finds a casty courtship stone and storms out and and well he uh, finds it because the or the, or right the cute female dj deirdre gives it to him who is really conducting 
a long con, right? And and yes. that you know because we we sit there and think that oh she's going to be all over him, but she's not. Well, she's, she was. Well, when that because remember when she first got the job, she threw herself out of the right, right away. Right, and then since then though, you know, it's right. almost as if she's befriending Christy. Yes, and you know we we seem to think okay that's what's going to happen here. And, you know, we learn it's really just kind of a long, a long con. And, uh, you know, Alec tracks her down to the club and we kind of knew that was going to happen. That, uh, tells her he's embarrassed by her costume. She claims she's doing it for him. It's like, okay, Christy, come on. Really? That's kind of a stretch. I'm trying to understand your culture and yeah. Okay. Going clubbing and rubbing up against other guys and or to understand your culture. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in the end though, uh, you know, Deirdre gets in Alex's bed and he's weak. She strikes. And, um, I guess the thing though is that in their culture, it apparently is acceptable for the man to stray. Sure. And now the question will be, well, yeah. Cause like Daytech even to stop says, well, I was, I was betting, you know, our maid, and he just says it like it's a matter of fact thing. Like, right. Yeah, no big deal. Just, right. You know. Now the question will be, is Rafe going to kill Alec well, if once he finds, he finds out? out. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you, right. You should say once he finds out, not if he finds out, because certainly he's probably going to find out. Right. Know? Um, I guess Alec's probably a central enough character. He's probably not going to kill him, but he's probably going to try. Yeah. And well, and what is Deirdre's? I mean, she seems to indicate that she just wants a rich husband. Yeah, right. Right. But really, is that it? Or is, is there, because I mean, she's taken the con this far. Maybe it's even a longer game than we've seen so far. Well, and you wonder whether she sees the moves that Stama is making, you know, marry a rich husband, get in to the game and then keep moving your moving your right. way and up because she reveals that to Chrissy, you know, because she said she's been, you know, a um, you know a prostitute for a long time, and that so she's learned, you know, how to play the game, right? Now Chrissy doesn't know how to play the game, and that's part of her frustration, um, the, and part of the reason why at least she says that she's going out to this club is because she just she doesn't get any respect, and so she feels like she needs to find ways to, you know. I get in with the family and everything, but uh, you know, but she doesn't know how to play the game, though. Yeah. I respected her when she was in the uh, casty bathing tub or bathing pool. Yeah, that was nice. Um, now, the last relationship I want to look at is the one between Nolan and Arissa, and it's probably my favorite relationship. You know, the the father daughter relationship, and um, you know, it's just you know they have so many ups and downs, but at the end, um, so. Since contracting with Irzu, Arissa has apparently developed these powers of self-healing. Although in this episode we do get to see, you know, the the scene on the ship where those silver things or whatever it was, you know, going into her body. Um, but she didn't have healing powers after that. So, so we assume it's the deal she made with Irzu. Um, she shot, and she's healed. Now was that was that a memory or I think that's a memory, right? Because and she's had that or memory. Has she seen the future? No, I think it's a memory. I think it, she was on a ship that was, uh, you know, in orbit above the Earth, right? And but, then realized the, okay, and realized oh. what they were going to be doing to humans. So they, she and the guy, took over the ship. I mean, that's the way I always okay. interpreted. I could be wrong. 
No, I, I, I kind of thought because just because the guy totally didn't recognize her at right. all, so I thought maybe she's in some way seeing the future. Yeah, well, I like that too. Um, regardless, she's obsessed with this man's face, and and you know we we've seen her with her sketchbook many times, and she's sketching that face. Um, she doesn't know its significance. Uh, now we find out that Rin is in town looking for Sukar, who's disappeared, and. She, Rin, that is, has the man who is her lawyer with her. And then we start seeing the, you know, the, the recognition occurs and we find out that, um, you know, that he was that fellow officer back on the ship. Now, the, like you bring up, we don't, that doesn't answer the question why he doesn't remember or he's just pretending that doesn't remember or something happened to him to preclude him from remembering. I I think it'd be one of those last two because he he seemed like genuinely surprised and and by Arissa. Right. Now, either way, she doesn't let Nolan in on what's happening to her. And he's kind of beginning to notice. He sees her get stabbed, thinks she's hurt, realizes the truth. Uh, You know, she tries to, uh, when she got shot, now he missed, he goes, no, he didn't, didn't miss. I saw. And so, um, he does realize the truth, but he doesn't press her for more information. So he realizes apparently she can't be hurt. Um, doesn't he cut her wrist? Yeah, he, he cuts something. Yeah. yeah, he cuts like her hand just a little bit, and yeah. then he holds it and watches it heal yeah, in front yeah. of his eyes. So and then, uh, so anyway, um, you know, the, no Berlin in this episode, which was disappointing, but. Uh, you know, it's funny because you mentioned her at first, and so I like tried to Google images from her, and she's just dressed in her in her uniforms. Like, uh, what's what's the big deal about her? And yeah. then now, like, wow, <laughs> Berlin, holy cow! Yeah, she's uh, she's something. So she's a, a, a yeah. You know, I agree with you now that she's like definitely one of those characters you really want to see in there because what she's got going, I don't even know what she's got going. Yeah. Well, and and the other thing, I think what they've done, you know, you you talked about Damon Lindelof, and rightly so. That I think the writers have set us up for so many possibilities here. That uh, you know, the thing that's going on with uh, Stama uh, and Daytac, the thing that's going up with Alec, which obviously those two are intertwined. Then Rafe, who obviously wants to get his minds back. Um, you know, this guy that the, the E-Rep guy that's in charge is obviously a loose cannon and, and, you know, he's got, he's clearly got skeletons in his closet. So you wonder how long it's going to be before he's out and Amanda's back in and we get the town back to the way it was when the show started. Oh, so Amanda's the kind of a mess. Now well, too, so. well, she is, she's handling it. Let's, we'll just say that. Well. Yeah, you know, kind of, kind of. So, uh, but I just like the idea, and this is actually a comforting thought. That if we really didn't have the internet, then there'd be more sex tapes being made out there. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Berlin's recording herself, and Tommy's like, "What?" She's like, "What?" Like, yeah. you know, there's no internet. Yeah. It's not going anywhere. Good point. So, all right. Well, uh, what do you got about falling skies? Which um, you'll just have to spoil me. I didn't get. Okay. I didn't yeah, see it yet, I, I'm but that's okay. Apologize to Dave in advance because there's some pretty heavy things going on in this one. So we know that the Masons are all reunited now in in Chinatown. So whereas before this whole season has been following multiple storylines, um, we're pretty much down to a single storyline with maybe a slight branching off here. Uh, later on in the in the episode 
So when we last left them, uh, Lexi had gotten into this cocoon and was metamorphosing into something. We, they didn't know what because you know they she's not a shifani, she's not human. She's kind of changing into something else. And there's a lot of the people of the second mass are not down with this. And there's a lot of people who say we should just kill her right now. And and Tom actually kind of somewhat considers it for a second, but realizes this is his daughter, so he decides to protect her. Uh, so at the beginning of this episode, she comes out of the cocoon. And so it's obviously everyone's like, what's going on? Um, you know, Anne had this moment with her when she was in the cocoon where uh, where Lexi told her, you know, basically I'll, I'll always protect my family. And so she comes out and she basically seems like she's all Ishfeni. She's, she's disgusted by the humans. She calls Tom, Tom Mason. She doesn't call him dad. Um, she refers to him as Tom Mason. And we know that the overlord is, you know, she said, or he said, someone said, we know that the overlord is the, the father. And I guess I'd still thought that maybe Tom had contributed some DNA, but no, he, he didn't at all. Um, so the overlord's really the father. So she, she doesn't call him dad, even though he is like, I mean, he obviously sees himself as, I don't even know if he knows that he's not the father. Does yeah. He? Well, I, I don't know. Cause I'm behind on this. I mean, he didn't by the episode before it. Right. And how much time did he really oh, even because, spend with her anyway? Yeah. Right. Hardly any. And she was just, well, yeah, I mean, she was a baby, like two years old, but yeah, but yeah, she was, you know, just a couple months old and, uh, you know, physically it was just, you know, like, I think I can't remember, like just not very, very young when, when she, when they were separated. So Lourdes, and here's, here's the big one. The first one, Lourdes wants to go with Lex. Lexi's going to leave the second match. She's like, I'm not, you know, humans are killers. All you want to do is kill. I tried to show you a better way. I tried to show you the peaceful way. Um, so I'm, I'm leaving. Uh, Lourdes says, take me with you. And in response, Lexi kills her. She like does something where, and, and so you're the Lourdes. She's been with the show since like season one, right? Maybe even the yeah, pilot. Sure. And, 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 and just like that, bam. I was just like, <gasps> I mean, I could kind of thought it might happen, but then I was still like, no, that's, that's, that's not, she's, but they did it. And then she like does something where she freezes everyone else. Like, cause obviously people now there's a bunch of armed men around her. And so people want to kill her, but she makes everyone like kind of like freeze. And she just walks through them like no biggie and, and walks away and uh, I guess escapes. So after she leaves now, we learn that the Ashfeni are coming big time. Like they've got like three divisions or something. Like a lot of them are coming to attack the second mass. Um, and we learned this because uh, two guys were captured. Um, the one guy, the the overlord, and it's, we learned it's the overlord who Tom uh, fried. Um, he burns the one guy and then sends the other guy back. And so Tom realizes a message, right? That this is revenge. The, the The overlord wants Tom Mason. He wants the whole second mass, obviously, but he really wants to get at Tom Mason. So we learned that. So the, as the second mass prepares... Uh, ben decides he's going to run off and try to find Lexi and to bring her back. He thinks she might be able to help. So he runs off to help her. Um, the Volm blow up this bridge, and this will now force the Ashfeni to go around, which is, they, they, have, they have this big strategy for defeating them, or at least trying to do the best they can for fighting them. And it, it works at first. The first wave of the attack, uh, you know, Anne has this, some chemical that they kind of rain fire down on top of the Ishfeni. 
Um, and so their plan works, except that they break a gas main, and which blows up. And so there's loads of the second mass is in the uh, in the street um, when the gas main goes up, and one of them is Maggie. So we don't know what happened. We don't know if Maggie, because you know the the people who had who had retreated uh, survived it. Um, Hal is trying to find Maggie, but he he can't find her. So we we don't know what her deal is. She's uh, going to come back dressed in black with a mask. Could be exacting revenge. Could on, be. Oh wait, that's Birds of Prey. Sorry. <laughs> um, so we have um, now Sarah's in this one again, and you know we had seen Sarah's kind of this tough chick, and she's like the female equivalent of Pope. But now we see not so much. Um, Pope is all like, "Oh, I love killing skitters. It's like the greatest thing in the world." He's he's excited for the coming attack. She wants to leave. It's like, let's get out of here now. We can take the car. We got enough gas. We can make it to Florida. Um, so she wants to escape. He's like, no way. I wouldn't miss this fight for all the world. So we see that she's not really like him so much, you know? So the second wave of the attack now, now there, there's a lot of people have died. Uh, there's no way that they can stand up to them for a second wave. Uh, the second wave comes in. Tom thinks since he just wants me, Tom's going to take out the overlord and, uh, Tector who's Ryan Robbins. Um, has this old like Civil War musket that's very powerful. He actually, we saw him blow off in the Svenny's head earlier with it. So Tom says, give me your musket. You know, I'm going to just get up on that roof. And I'm going to take out the Overlord. And Tech was like, listen, first of all, you don't know how to use the musket. Secondly, you're not a good marksman. Let me do it. Tom said, no, this is, this is my fight. So he goes up on the roof. When he's up there, Tector comes up. And he's, he said, let me inspect the, the, the rifle mate because you know, I don't want this to like misfire. He's looking and he says, oh, no, it needs some oil in here. Can you go get me? And, of course, we see what's happening here, right? Tom runs off to get whatever he needs to get. Um, while he's up there, the, the overlord shows up. Tector pulls a mask over his face. Um, he shoots at the overlord but just wings him, I think, And at which point uh, they start firing on him or something. I can't remember exactly what happened, but he, he ends up jumping down or falling down the roof, and then he's got bombs on him that he – then sets off like kind of suicide. Ryan Robbins. Yeah. Okay. Good. Then he can shave off that stupid beard for continuum. I I think that now he has a possibility of shaving the beard, right? Unless, you know, he's having the beard here because he wore for, yeah, I don't know. No, it's, it's the other way. It's, it's, um, so, so yeah. So again, another long time character that's been with us since season one is, is, uh, is dead and and for sure dead. Like Lord is for sure. Um, Tector for sure. So, the uh, overlord goes over. Remember, his point was had been to to get Tom Mason. Um, he sees Tector's body, and it's obviously charred. It could really be anyone, and he walks away. So th- you know, there is a question of whether he believes that Tom Mason is dead or not, because Tector was wearing like the kind of the ghost mask, right? So he, he was looking like the ghost. So um, does, did the overlord buy it? I don't know. Um, Tom is stuck underneath the rubble. Underneath, he, he's like trapped underneath the rubble from the explosion. So um, we don't know what the, uh, he, I mean, he's alive, we see, uh, but, you know, he's separated from the second mass. Uh, the rest of the second mass actually went to a fallout shelter because th- that was the strategy was for that second wave that they were just going to basically hide and make the Shveni believe that, that they wiped out the second mass, that their attack was successful, um, you know, except for Tom, who was going to stay back alone to try and finish off the Overlord. Basically, right now, I mean, it's just, Things look really, I'm probably as bad as it's looked for them throughout this whole series. I mean, this is really a very low point. 
for the second mass. They just the the last scene is just kind of like showing all the people who have died in the attack and everything. And yeah, you know, I don't even know the characters' names. There's a lot of characters who are kind of secondary characters, um, but you know characters that that we recognize. And then they show Maggie. Now we don't know if Maggie's dead or not. And if I was a betting man, I'd say she's she's not, uh, but potentially she could be as well. Um, and so it's just really a tough time. So good stuff about this one. As always, uh, great action. Um, you know, it, it keeps the story moving. There's never a dull moment. Every time you get to a commercial break with uh, with Falling Skies, I'm, I'm surprised. I'm like, really? Already? It just seemed like two minutes ago it was a commercial mm-hmm. break, you know? Um, there was actually some stuff I didn't care for very much when, uh, before the attack, they've laid Lourdes out. And it's like Hal is there and, and Tom and Anne. And it's just all very cliche, you know, the whole thing of them looking and saying, oh, I, I should have been better. She was a good person, this, that, and the other, and everything. Like, which, you know, granted, people do that. That's what happens when people die. We say nice things about them. But it's still, like, it was just very, how it was set up reminded me that it's a TV show. You know, like a lot, a lot of times Falling Skies doesn't do that. You get caught up in it. You don't think this is a TV show. But that's the point when you say, oh, this is so staged. This is so scripted and TV stuff and everything. Um, so that was it. So here's my haiku. Lexi might be super bad. Overlord's revenge. The humans are on the ropes. All right. And you wonder, I mean, it sounds like maybe they'll end the season with, you know, them going even lower. And then the final season, season five will be about, you know. Yeah, I think you're right. Because I actually, it's like, oh, what is this like episode nine? You know, because I I thought, wow, there's so much happening. So dramatic. So many people dying. Like, is this like the second to last episode? Oh, no, it's only episode seven. So there's still three more episodes. So, yeah, I mean, basically, there's there's nowhere to go but down probably still even more. Yep. So, all right. Well, finally, uh, Extant, and this is episode four of season one called Shelter, July 30th, 2014. And what we did find out, I'm still trying to figure out exactly how this is going to play out, but it's 13-episode season. And by my calculations, it would have ended on October 1st, but apparently it was scheduled to end on September 24th. And now the network has moved it up a week to the 17th, which I'm wondering, are they going to like burn off two episodes at the same time for two straight weeks, just the way they did with Birds of Prey? I mean, which doesn't bode well for their being right now. The ratings have been going down. I mean, they're still, you know, okay, but. The, they have been going trending down, so you know we'll see. All right. Anyway, opening scene: we see the Woods family on the run from ISEA. Molly says she needs one day and plans to do her own DNA test. Obviously, they want to find the the DNA of the baby inside her. All right. Sparks and Kern, the assistant director, have been tracking the car with drones. Still haven't located her. And he tells Yasumoto that Molly has resisted her attempts to come in into quarantine. But now a more direct approach is going to be needed, according to Yasumoto. And one of the things we see about Yasumoto is that, you know, he is also pretty ruthless. I mean, we see him as this, this I don't want to say nice guy, but somebody that's interested in prolonging his own life. And now it looks as if he's interested in prolonging his own life at the expense of others. And, you know, all right. So then we, we see these Russian scientists who are working for Yasumoto. And there's a lot of, 
uh, discussion out on the internet about whether these guys are supposed to be comical or, uh, or, you know, I didn't see it that way, but they seem worried that their progress hasn't been enough for Yasumoto, who comes to their lab at this undisclosed location. Uh, they've been attempting to replicate the meteor substance for 10 years and have come so close. Uh, so that's the first time we've heard about this meteor substance. Uh, minimize the danger to a degree. Yasumoto asks about healing properties. So now, you know, all this stuff is starting to make sense a little bit. He's told there's progress, and we find out that that it's safe to the touch, but they're still worried about it airborne in terms of the respiratory system. Yasumoto directs one of the men to remove his respirator mask as a test. And you see both of the look on both of their faces like, you know, we're not ready and Yasumoto says, of course, this is your decision, which means if you decide the wrong way, you're back to Volgograd or wherever it was they said they were from. It looks as if Anton is going to be fine after he removes his mask, but then his eyes start turning black uh, or blood or whatever, blood or, and then of course I'm thinking black oil back to the X-Files starts oozing out of his eyes and we know that uh, all is not well. We see the Woods family returns to Molly's home which is an unnamed seaport, and her father, who's a doctor of some sort, greets him, and we see that it's Lou Gossett Jr., so we've actually got two Academy Award winners in this episode. Wow, that's a name I haven't heard in a yeah, long time. Yeah, and he has a little bit of sci-fi cred. If you remember the movie, gosh, it was probably about 85 or 87, Enemy Mine. Yeah, I say Enemy Mine. Yeah, yeah, that was a great movie. He was yeah. awesome in that. Yeah, with Dennis Quaid. Um and so he greets them and so far doesn't seem to ask any questions. And right away, he has this relationship with Ethan and puts his arm around him. And you're wondering, does he know he's a robot? All right. So later we then we cut back and we see Sam, who's in an interrogation room at ISEA, clearly held against her will, asked to go to the bathroom. And while she's flushing uh, Molly's blood sample, the guards burst in. Clearly, she's been watched. Um, Sparks tells Yasumoto that it's critical she not get the information, obviously the DNA that she seeks, and experiments to replicate the life-sustaining substance have failed. Obviously, we hear that again. Uh, Yasumoto tells him that it's time Molly be taken out of the equation if she won't cease and desist. So at this point, we don't know what that means. Obviously, we later find out. He also implies Sam Barton should be killed or at least controlled, and, and we find out that Sparks comes up with a, a, a better way of doing it. And, and Sparks, one of the, you know, he's one of those characters where we just are not sure which side he's on. I think his intentions uh, skew to the good side, but he's still a bit intimidated and a bit controlled by Yasumoto. But Sparks is grilling Sam about concealing Molly's pregnancy. And, you know, she recounts the story about ISEA implanting the embryo and all that. We find out what he's got over Sam and that her brother apparently shot and killed his roommate, that he apparently had mental problems. She pulled some strings, uh, wrote out a doctor's report so that he could be put into a minimum security mental facility, but neglected to tell the judge that she was actually his brother, uh, his sister, which obviously would be a conflict of interest. And obviously he threatens her brother's safety. And so now we know she'll keep her mouth shut. Uh, the other interesting characters is Gordon Kern and you, you don't watch it, right? 
No. Okay. So Gordon Kern, his his assistant, and Gordon Kern is just, I mean, he, he's like, can I shoot him now? I mean, he he's a lot like Jane in uh, Firefly. Firefly. Yeah. Can I shoot him now? Now? Yeah. Can, now can I kill him? And, and, and he has to be you know, kept in check. But I'm starting to think that Kern has actually been planted there by higher-ups, whether Yasumoto or somebody maybe above Yasumoto. All right, well, at lunch, Ethan tells his grandfather that his parents have, have secrets. He doesn't know what they're arguing about. Um, and some guy comes up to his grandfather, Lou Gossett Jr., and tells him that there are some easy gambling marks available. So he takes Ethan and his quick study ability. We see them skipping stones, and the grandfather shows him how to do it. Ethan fails on his first attempt, and then you see him pick up a stone, kind of look out at the ocean, and then throw this rock that just skips perfectly like five straight times. So the grandfather takes him into the bar, and uh, basically he's using him to win money. But we are taken back to the discussion he was having about secrets, and the grandfather says, well, you know, nobody's perfect. So then the kid wins. The grandfather tells everybody, all right, he's got these fistful, fistfuls of money, double or nothing. The kid can do it three straight times. And you see the kid thinking about it. He's looking around at the everybody, and he misses. And you know he misses on purpose. Right. And the grandfather's irate. And it goes back to the, you know, the grandfather, why did you? And he says, well, nobody's perfect. And the grandfather says, it's not what I meant. You know, and you know the kid <laughs> wants to be human, right? I mean, that's how he's programmed. He's programmed to learn so that, okay, if I'm human, I'm not perfect. I shouldn't be able to. And then what I did like is that, you know, I think so many TV shows would have had him make the first two and then miss the third one. But here, you just missed the first one and then we're over because it was that he could make three straight. Um, all right, Kern's team has Molly in their facility now on an operating table. And, you know, Molly sees the circles in her abdomen again. It's clear she's been drugged. Room starts shaking. And it appears as if Molly's got some sort of telekinetic powers. This syringe that's on a table just flies into her hand. She has enough wherewithal to get up, plunge it into the neck of uh, one of the attendants. She's stumbling through the hallway. She opens a door. And, of course, she goes into the operating room. It seems as if everybody's been waiting for their for her. They put her on the table. We learn that this operating facility is on a ship offshore, which I like. That's kind of sci-fi tropish. I mean, we've seen that. Heck, we saw an arrow. Right. Uh, we've seen it in X Files before. Well, no, no the, the last ship or whatever, right? The last. Yeah, and right. Uh, and then, as the episode is ending, you see one of the doctors with this laser scalpel go down and start to cut into her abdomen. So the idea is, are they cutting the fetus out, or are they just going in to have a look? Right. So. Either way, um, the store is really moving. I, I think people are really missing out on a good show. I mean, I know with you, there's, we got so many shows we're trying to keep up with. So I, I know for you, it's probably just a matter of time. But uh, it really is a good show. And, you know, look, it was intended to be one season, just like Under the Dome. So I'd be fine if it doesn't come back for a second season. But We'll have told the whole story, at least. Right. Either way, I've, I've really enjoyed it. So. All right. Well, this week you do have a little bit for Project X, right? Uh, yep. We uh, always had this kind of 
the Harley Quinn uh, Project X kind of you know sitting in my back pocket, but uh, she hasn't been on for so long. And then she was in a couple, but really um, still not as necessarily a, a major part of it, though. Um, as we saw with the uh, the feet of clay, she she took a more central role there, but not as nearly as much. I mean, this is the most we've seen of her, pretty much uh, in the whole series is in this episode. So Harley Quinzel, Harleen Quinzel, otherwise known as Harley Quinn, which I did not know this, but she first appeared in the cartoon. Like most times, a, a character is going to appear in the, the comic book first and then make it to the cartoon. She was a character created. For Batman the Animated Series back in 1992, and then because of her popularity, uh, found her way into the comic book. So it's kind of like the back door to uh, the, or the, I guess the opposite direction kind of way that uh, characters usually go. Uh, there was a 1994 graphic novel called Mad Love, which really just kind of like it was it was part of like the cartoon. So it's still not officially like kind of DC canon at this point yet. Yeah, it's just still you know the the. Mad Love is, is all about um, the the animated series, but we learned some backstory there. She's a, psychi- a psychiatrist at Arkham. Uh, she falls in love with the Joker. She helps him escape a number of times. Uh, she sees him return all beaten up one time, and she goes crazy and moves from being Harleen Quinzel, the doctor, to Harley Quinn, the villainess. And um, she actually buddies up with Poison Ivy. I don't know if you, you remember Poison Ivy from, uh, I think it was, uh, who played it? Uh, in, in the, Uma Thurman. Uma Thurman, right, in the, in the one movie. Uh, so Poison Ivy becomes her friend, injects her with some kind of serum that gives her superhuman strength and immunity to the toxins. So, you know, like part of it was in the, when the, she's fighting um, Huntress. I'm like, how how is she able to even hang with Huntress at all? Right, we thought fight? her abilities were, uh, yeah, like the, the you know uh, hypnosis, right? right? But she's like going toe to toe with Huntress, and like, how is that possible? So I think maybe that's assuming this backstory here that she's got this injection. I don't know. Uh, in 1997, she finally comes to comic books, and she has her own series actually from 2001 to 2003, in which she's killed, and you're gonna love this. She's killed and resurrected. And uh, at the end of it, she kind of ends up checking herself into Arkham. She realizes that she is kind of crazy, so she checks herself into the asylum. Um, she's been in a number of appearances since. I'm not going to go to all of them. But basically, like, sometimes she's helping out Batman. And most of the time, she's, like, you know, the, the baddie um, helping out the Joker. She's actually teams up with, like, Catwoman sometimes. There's actually one where she teams up with Catwoman. Now, it's not um, Selena Kyle Catwoman. It's a, it's a, another person being the, the Catwoman. Um, actually, do we ever talk about Catwoman? I don't know if we ever talk about Catwoman Project. Oh, anyway. So, um, but the, yeah, too late now, right? <laughs> so she teams up with this, uh, this Catwoman, and they, they find and free the Olympian gods. And uh, that, that sounds ridiculous, except for in comic books, it's kind of like standard fare, right? Um, in the new 52, we, we talked about the new 52 before she, uh, gets a revamped appearance, new backstory, um, you know, and all kinds of other adventures. She actually becomes part of the suicide squad as well, which is like kind of some ex criminals who are brought together to be mercenaries for the government and everything. And of course, they're always mucking about. And the last thing is, as we talked about before at, at the cons, uh, the Harley Quinn costumes are, are very popular. Um, and it's kind of because they, it is give a female a chance to dress in a very kind of sexy type costume. So I think that is a big part of the, the popularity of it. Um, the last thing, I th- 
I think before I had said that Laura Flynn Boyle played her in uh, in the the unaired pilot. It was Sherilyn Fenn, so oh, okay. I had the wrong um, uh, Twin Peaks right. actress. Uh, so Sherilyn Fenn played her in the unaired pilot. Uh, I guess they didn't care for how she was going with the character, and so they brought in uh, Mia Sarah to play her. Yeah, who's been awesome. Yeah, yeah, she's great. No question. I'm, I'm sure a big part of what we talked about today is uh, how you know how good she was as as Doctor Quinn, yeah. Harley Quinn. All right. Well. Episode 13, Devil's Eyes, aired on February 19th, 2003, written by Adam Armas, uh, who's also executive producer on the following, Heroes and Night Stalker. And then Melissa Rosenberg is the other writer who uh, wrote eight episodes of Dexter, and you're going to like this. Okay. All five Twilight movies. There's five? Well, they did the uh, the uh, Hunger Games thing where they split up the last book into two. two were there movies. were there four of those books? I don't know. Whatever, but I, I think there are five a, movies. All right. Yeah. Anyway, uh, teleplay by Hans <laughs> Tobieson, and uh, you know, again, we've said many times that the amount of information that's available about this show is, is scant. So, um, as a series finale. You know, for writers that likely didn't have much time, if any, to bring the story to some sort of resolution, I think they did a great job. And and the more I think about it, I wonder if it was intended to be a 13-episode season and that this was simply the season finale, which, you know, certainly left plenty of room for season two. And I think that makes more sense. Yeah, I agree. Um, They definitely were able to bring about a degree of resolution there um and but still leaving enough open threads that you know had the show continued they they certainly had plenty of a fire there especially that final scene with alfred talking to bruce wayne on the phone or leaving a message for bruce wayne actually it seemed like um you know that as, as i've been saying all along that that could open up a whole new thing where batman shows up and sure. all of a sudden so. right because we've talked about what's the problem she's had with her dad so right all right, anyway, opening scene, snow's falling outside. Helena's in a session with Dr. Quinzel, tells her she feels like she's been born again. And Dr. Q even says, you know, you seem happy. And, and, and of course, Reese tells her that, uh, you know, later in the episode. And we assume this because whole- Because I'm happy. Yeah, well, we assume this whole born again feeling is because of her relationship with Reese, but it could also be the fact that she's not- hiding her identity anymore yeah. and it's probably a combination of both yeah exactly. i think it's probably a combination right. of both but if you would say which is the greater uh cause of her happiness i would have to say is the feeling like she doesn't have this burden of the dual identity I right think. and and the whole you know tells her you're no longer defined by your secret you said okay we're gonna do a little exercise close your eyes i don't do closed eyes right and dr q tells her you can trust me it's like, no, you right. can't. Right? Well, th- this whole scene is just so pregnant with dramatic irony. Right. You know, like Dr. Quinn says, you have exposed yourself. And we say, right. like, you've exposed yourself emotionally. But no, you've literally exposed yourself to me, your, your greatest enemy that you don't even well, know. Well, right. And, and um, she looks suspicious, but we don't know of what, because she's got no reason to be suspicious of Dr. Quinzel. So she even tells her that Barbara told their secret to someone that Barbara's falling in love with. 
but it wasn't a mistake. She reveals even Wade Brixton's name, and you see the wheels turning in Dr. Quinzel. So now she's got leverage, and that's kind of what this whole opening scene's about is that that Huntress is not being compl- becoming complacent, but you know maybe becoming a little more comfortable in her own skin. But she's become a little too comfortable, and she's giving out information that's going to come back to yeah, absolutely, the trio. And, and so very uncharacteristic because you know normally she would probably be why do you need to know these things? Why do you need to know about Wade? It has nothing to do with me. I, you know, I, don't, I there's I don't think that that's in any way appropriate for this what we're talking about here but she doesn't say that she she just lets it go and she she gives up all this information and you just think that that really that that's very uncharacteristic of her and that you know but but now that she feels this liberation this rebirth that she now it's all about trusting people right that's the whole time this whole series people have been saying you need to trust and now she's finally learning to trust other people rather than just yourself and it comes back to burner yeah we'll talk about uncharacteristic she hugs dr quinzel at the end of the session so all right well, well anyway. it was actually that moment i thought they were gonna kiss oh you know? i did too like they're like face to face i'm yep. like do it do it yeah. do it. but yeah no no so all right anyway dr harleen quinzel slash harley quinn and her plan to take over new gotham city so we find out early on she's contracted the scientist to create a machine that can transfer meta powers from one person to another. And obviously she's the person that wants to end up with the powers. And, you know, of course the guy that, that has the hood on his head, we, we kind of know he's not going to pull through, which he doesn't. Um, but t- test her powers by having the scientist first pat your head, hop on one foot, jump out the window and he jumps out the window. So now we've got two corpses, right? right. We've got the guy yes. that's dead in the machine and then uh, the doctor that jumps out the Which window. It shows like a certain level of hubris that right. she has the doctor jump out the window of the place where the big evil machine is all set up. Like uh, you find this remote seedy looking place to have this machine and then you say, hey, police, come by and check out where my machine is. Yep. So now uh, Dr. Romanic. Uh, Barbara apparently knows of him and that uh, she knows he was working on transferring meta power. So that was kind of convenient in, in telling the story. Um, but she's now got the power, Dr. Quinzel to put into play her plan to take over new Gotham city. And obviously her first step is to take over the clock tower, which I just, I don't know why I didn't notice this before, but that window, it looks like the window of the millennium Falcon. Oh, Nice. I just, I'm like, hey, that looks exactly like the Millennium Falcon. How, how did I not notice that until right now? Yeah, nice. All right, well, before she does that, though, she goes to No Man's Land, uh, has a drink. Gibson tells her, oh, yeah, we have a friend in common. You know, uh, Helena Kyle tells Gibson that she was, you know, so she told Gibson she was seeing a therapist? That kind of seems uncharacteristic, but apparently. Yeah, well, she's really chatty now. You know? Although, you know, for all we know, Gibson's been like following yeah, her like true. a stalker, you know, <laughs> which is certainly possible. Good point. Um, she tests her powers on Gibson and tells her, I want you, tells him, I want you to lose your mind. And he starts barking and, and it's really kind of pathetic. I mean, what he turns into. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But, uh, you know, funny though, still, you know, like he, he's pathetic, but he's, he's still amusing, though. I guess it does start to kind of get a little old. Right. Now, Barbara, you know, gets the police reports about the disturbance at No Man's Land, sends Huntress to the bar. She finds the place trashed. 
and Gibson ranting like a psychotic. So what does she do? Well, I'll take him to my therapist, right. <laughs> uh, which is ironic, obviously. All right. Yes. All right. So back at the clock tower, Barbara tells Helena that she'd ID'd the other body as a meta whose power was hypnosis. And now, you know, as if we hadn't figured it out already, uh, that's what her power is. Now, it doesn't explain, like you said, all the ninja skills that that she puts on display right, later. But she had done that earlier. Like she, I can't remember what episode, but I mean, she was in a fight scene in the previous episode too. So. Right. Now, now Reese, uh, you know, when Helen and Reese are out at the, at the scene of the crime, you know, he mentions that there's an ATM and it's got surveillance footage. It's going to take me 24 hours or more. You know, maybe you can speed up the process, um, which, you know, she does by telling Barbara. And Barbara realizes right away it's Dr. Quinzel. So now at least we know, you know, early on in the episode, everybody knows who the enemy is. Right. So, it, it, you know, we don't have to like pain, you know. And there's like a side note from when Reese and Helen are talking because they still are like kind of flirting with one another. And I'm like, aren't, haven't they slept together? Because like they were, it seemed like that was what they were going to do like immediately after the prom uh, last episode. And was it, not, was it the prom? Oh, no, it's two episodes ago, right? Yeah. Um, so no, not after the prom, after the, uh, the, the, the fashion, fashion show. The fashion show. Um, because you know, I I just assume with uh, you know the 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 whatever the talk that they're they're immediately going to knock some boots, but um, and they're still flirting like they haven't yet, you know. Like I thought, I thought they were slipping, but they're still flirting like this. And then we find out later that they still haven't; they just have kissed. Yeah. So, so. these people are really taking it slow. Yeah. Well, very old fashioned, I guess. Well, although things were kind of picking up here, but anyway. So uh, Helena. Um, ends up slugging Barbara, right? I mean, you know, we, we assume, as soon as she does it, we assume that it's because she's, you know, been mind controlled, returns to Dr. Q with the information, gives her the complete rundown of the clock tower, codes, blueprints, everything. And she asks, why didn't you just kill her? And Gibson sitting there ranting, superheroes don't kill people. But Helena says that, uh, you didn't tell me to kill her. So we're beginning to wonder how deep under is Helena? You know, is she fighting it? Is she resisting? Is she not affected at all? And is it all a ruse? So, yeah, you- right. And, and, and you know, just call the mind falling skies. You know, because we know we saw that scene with Weaver and his daughter, and like the basically the point is they can't these these aliens can't completely take us over, right? There's our our, our core st- remains the same. That's like a big thing with Lexi as well. That he actually repeats that kind of philosophy where he says we're not going to kill her because she's still in there she's okay she'll come back to us so this is your humanity you know it's kind of this idea that there is this your inner core is untouchable like even like you know hypnosis or suggestion whatever can't really change you can't make you do something that you and and hypnosis can't you you can't do something that you wouldn't do so where she says throw yourself out the window that you, you you can't hypnotize a person throw himself out of a window right so, well, the other interesting thing, while she is supposedly, she, Huntress, that is, being controlled by Dr. Quinzel, Dinah's working with Reese, and before she can return uh, to Barbara, Helena shows up and starts trying to kill them. Dinah tells her, you know, that she's under hypnosis, and, and you know, despite Alfred's protestations, Barbara prepares to put that spinal thing on again that enables her to walk. And this is like, what, the second time in three episodes? Yes. Um, 
and granted, she seems to be making progress. In fact, I think she, this time she says it, it doesn't even hurt all that much. But, you know. Right. But she's not like before. She was just going out just to stand. Right. And now she's, you know, there's the possibility of her actually fighting. And so that's, you know, it's a whole different ball of wax. All right. Now, I know this is 2003 when they're making this show. And I would say that, that you know, most of the things that, the three women wear, you know, were probably fashionable then and certainly look good now. Except, what is it with that 80s leather jacket that Barbara's been wearing? That's got to go. All right, yeah, anyway. I don't know. I think it's kind of cool. Uh, no, I like it. No. All right. So anyway, Barbara shows up. The two of them start to fight. Uh, surprisingly, Barbara holds her own until Helena has her pinned. I have to kill you. And then Barbara, you know, has a little like some, she flashes, yeah, yeah. bright light into her eye, snaps her out of it, and she doesn't remember anything. All right. So then we cut to the fact that Quinzel has the clock tower, which is, you know, I mean. Bad, bad. I took, I took one of these internet tests about, you know, how, how good or evil are you? And, uh, <laughs> um, you know, one of the questions was, you know, do you root for the bad guys? There was something kind of cool about this scene that, that, you know, just seeing her look around at all this stuff and just be fascinated. And, and it's, you know, all bad guys in there on the one hand, I think we know it's, you know, she's going to be thrown out at the end, but regardless, I, I was, I was with her on that. (laughs) Um, Wade comes in and after introducing himself, Q acknowledges does it get any better than this? I mean, you know, it's like my prey walks right up to me. Yeah. And the bar, the man Barbara Gordon loves walks right into her trap. She kisses him and then stabs him. So. Yep. That was a ignominious end for, for Wade. And yeah. as well to my theory. Yeah. Which was still alive. I would have to say, even in this episode, up until the point where she stabbed him, I was thinking, like, I was almost expecting him to come out and say, "Hey, man, I really set her up for you, didn't I?" You know, or something like that. But, uh, but no, he comes in and, and gets kissed and, yeah. and killed, and so he dies. And with it dies your. And so does my theory. And so does your theory. All right. So anyway, that, uh, but you know, so tries to call Alfred at the clock tower. Harley answers the phone and tells um, that Helena gave up all the information. And would it flip a switch deep in your psyche to know that we kissed right before I killed him? Um, and then she does the thing, which I thought was pretty cool. The, the whole sending out the feed of her eye, just her eyes to every TV in new Gotham city. Did you ever see the movie Videodrome? Um, I think I have Deborah been. Harry back in the, yeah, gosh, yeah. that was probably early eighties, early to mid eighties. Um, but you know, here's where your typical, like kind of comic book bad guy, this is where they always trip up, right? They always have to taunt the hero oh. to say, "Hey, you know, like I, I killed your boyfriend, ha ha." You know, I'm just giving you super Game of Thrones amazing motivation to to kill me now and everything. Like, um, you know, they always they always do that. You know, they always taunt. Like, how come you can't just say, "Hey, I got your clock tower"? You yeah, know, cl- clearly no taunting penalties in the. Yeah, 
All right. Well, anyway, so now Barbara's really feeling, you know, down at this point, virtually right. powerless. Was that really good? You know, where she like kind of like starts. To, you see her lip quivering. And yeah. She looks like she's going to cry, and then she just kind of pulls it together really quick. I'm like, man, that, that's like. Well, really- Dinah kind of steps in and, and really, basically, metaphorically slaps her across the face and 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 tells her that you know you 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 know you can do this. Boys, her confidence. Helena walks in, tells her that she can get into the clock tower and the plan is to pretend to still be under the spell obviously uh you know it works the <laughs> the scene you know helena's restrained you know q comes up and licks her face i'm not sure what that was all about we can, uh, just yeah we can do this all night helena responds that's one of her two favorite sentences i wonder what the other one was yeah. but uh, uh. Um, now the final fight scene to retake the clock tower and, you know, for someone other than Huntress to come crashing through the clock face when Dinah and Barbara make their entrances, that was pretty cool. You know, we talked, I think last week about, you know, why doesn't Dinah just use her telekinetic powers? Well, she does. You mentioned Dr. Quinzel's fighting skills. Uh, not sure where that came from, but, you know, she goes one-on-one with Huntress until Barbara takes over and, you know, she it's like, again, you talk about taunting. Does it bother you that my lips were the last to touch Wade? Yeah, I guess that's not going to be motivation yeah, to no, kick your ass. Right. Um, yeah, it's, just, it's just all these bad guys right. just get too overconfident and everything. Like right. the whole thing with like Alfred. Yeah, that was, that was cool how right. you know, we think Alfred's been mind zapped and so and he catches Helena until we figure out, oh, you know, but then it turns out, you know, she obviously had the flashing thing, cured Alfred and that. You know, he was able to break the security. Yeah. Well, you know, we've talked a lot of times about how this show has a light touch to it. Um, it's it's rarely really heavy, but you know, and certainly Doctor Quinzel is one of the comic reliefs of the series. But you know, this ending scene, I guess, what was so uh, emotional to me is that um, you know she taunts Barbara about having killed Wade. Barbara is ready to kill her until Huntress comes in and stops her. And, and, you know, that whole thing, you've saved me so many times from killing, you know, and that whole idea that we, that we keep getting driven home is we don't kill, we don't kill. And, and, you know, whether it stems back from the accidental death of, uh, black canary, black, no, the, the superhero that came back for the revenge of her sister. Oh yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so whether it's born out of that, but then that, that, saying revenge might dull the pain but the less we felt the less we were and and just you know you, the, the fact that barbara for all her trying to train you know both dinah and, and more to the point huntress to not be killers here she's put in that position where she wants nothing more than to avenge wade's death and and you know it, it's it's uh Helena that prevents that. So I thought that was a pretty compelling scene. Yeah, that was good. And you knew it was going uh, to happen, right? You knew yeah. that, uh, you know, Barbara, once she got the upper hand there, that someone's going to have to stop in and do what she had done so many other times with both Dinah and, and Helena to tell them, listen, no, revenge is, is not, we don't do revenge. Right. right. We don't kill. Right. Now, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about the Huntress-Reese relationship in this episode. And, and early on in the episode, you know, on the case with the bodies of uh, the two jumpers, 
She says, there I was feeling lonely and vulnerable, thinking you triggered the bat ring because you missed me. Um, yes, that's what I'm talking about. This little, you know, small talk. Right. right. Yeah. What? Risk a lecture from Oracle? I don't think so. Um, I mean, it was just priceless. Yeah, you're such um, a shipper. And then he even, you know, notices a difference in her, thinks she seems happy. And, and she's like, was that bad? And he's like, no, it, it's just that it's not in character with, with like, the I'm not hunters. quite as attracted to you when you're happy, though. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, he didn't really say that. But. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> now, she's uh, distraught over what she's done. Helena returns to the bar to drink, but uh, Jesse reminds her that her friends need her. Guilt gets the better of her. And, you know, that, that, uh, um, and, and she basically tells Reese that I let her in, Quinzel, that is. Who was I kidding? In other words, so it's so, you know, temporarily, you know, that, that, um, there's this relief because she is opening up, but now it, it seems like, okay, here I opened up and this is what happens. And, 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 you know, it's, she just has no experience at it. And Reese is kind of the one that, that sets her straight that fine, it's going to happen, but your friends need you. So, yeah. And kind of another uncharacteristic thing, I think with this wallowing in self pity, um, it's not something that she normally does. She usually is just like, let's move on. Let's go forward. She's that type of character. Um, to just be sitting in the bar saying, ah, you know, forget it. I don't care. I'm, I'm out. Uh, that's not like her. Right. And, and then and Reese brings her back to realize that. Right. And then at, at the end where it's clear that she doesn't want Reese to be in danger. And then they finally at least have their first real on screen kiss. Okay. You know, we don't, we're not sure what they've been doing behind the scenes, but, uh, they haven't been doing anything. They yeah, just well, said, they, they said in here that they, they've just kissed. So. All right. All right. Now, Barbara and Helena's relationship uh, is kind of interesting in this episode that, and, and something that certainly would have gotten explored in season two had Wade not gotten killed. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, now that they've both found love, there seems to be this little tension between the two. Uh, Barbara brings it out in the open. And, uh, next thing you know, Wade's driving Dinah to school. So, yeah. Right, he's he's really and see all these things being again ingratiating is the word that comes to my mind. But it's like you know when you're in college and like your roommate gets a girlfriend, all of a sudden she's hanging around all the time. You're like, dude, you know, I just right. want to sit in my underwear and play Blades of Steel. Come right. on, man, like what's what's with this? Well, and Barbara tells her that Wade's not going to change their relationship, but of course, how could it not? But again, it, it just kind of speaks to the fact that these women just don't have the experience right. because they've been fighting crime. And, and also that really the relationships are kind of incompatible with what they do. Yeah. The only possibility, like the one with, uh, between Reese and Helena, that has a chance of working simply because he's kind of involved with the action of it. You know, he's not, um, someone who is kind of like off to the side as Wade is. I mean, Wade's like an innocent bystander here. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of been a theme running through this whole thing is that, that it's really, they're trying to reconcile this private life with this other life. And it's the, the two things aren't really working out. Yep. So, uh, and then, you know, in, in that final fight scene, you know, we talked about Helena stopping Barbara from killing Harley. I can't let you do this. It makes us less. And then, as fine a final scene as I think you're going to see in a show like this. Uh, we've seen this scene uh, many times and it never gets old. The three of them on the roof. Uh, Barbara reminds Helena that, you know, they've all lost someone. And as long as we do this, there's a chance. Uh, that's a chance we take. 
And clearly, Barbara doesn't blame Helena. You know, you never chose this life. You never chose any of this. And then she says, well, maybe I'm not Batman's little girl anymore. And then the scene that you, you mentioned briefly a, a little while ago, Alfred calls Bruce Wayne and tells him he'd be very proud of his daughter and the way she turned out. And, you know, okay, so maybe there weren't tears streaming down my face at that point, but I got choked up a little yeah, bit it was, at that. It was a nice little, nice little ending. Except for, again, one of the times that reminds you that it's a television show because Alfred, it's not clear whether he's talking to, like at first I thought he'd just leave a message because mm-hmm. there was like no, it wasn't like waiting for responses or anything. And then after he said that, he kind of like nodded like he was listening. I'm like, really? Yeah, it just seemed like it was. A- yeah, but but again, to, for 2003, I mean, we're here 11 years later and to a certain extent, we're judging it against a show like uh, Arrow. No excuse. Well, okay, <laughs> all right. But yeah, so yeah, there's also, as Alfred and, and Jesse are, are sweeping up, he's like, so Alfred, you work for this bat guy? He's like, Batman. <laughs> yeah. It's like, really? Like, okay, people have told you now- And we've said this A before. number of times about Batman. Like, didn't you like Google him? Batman, Gotham City, and figure, you know, like, it was kind of a big deal. Like, really? I, I yeah, So it's just, his ignorance of Batman is, is appalling. Almost as bad as Kira Cameron's. Yep. Almost as bad as my mother. Right, right. Yeah, what you told me before. My mother calls me today for a crossword puzzle clue, which she often does. Um, all right, well, the clue is Batman's colleague. Uh, I have blank O blank I-N. I'm like, Mom, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, that's, that's rough. Yeah. Anyway, all right. Well, listen, we're glad you could join us tonight. And if you'd like to send some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Email to fatalistpodcast at gmail.com. Voicemails via SpeakPipe, which you can access through the Fatalist website. And we will be back in two weeks while we retool for our next Fatalist project, which we're not sure yet. We don't know what's going to be. We're not sure, we're, but we, we're talking about some changes, and we'll get back to you with that. But we'll probably be dark for about two weeks. Um, And like you, we're still awaiting the date of Lost Girls Season 5 premiere. So, until next time. Dave, if I could give my life to have Wade back, you know I would. But I can't.